Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you need some help with your happiness or achieving your goals, BetterHelp is here for you. It can offer a crucial assist. These are licensed professional counselors Get connected in under 24 hours. Talk in a safe online environment. Change counselors for free if necessary. This is a convenient, confidential, professional, affordable service. Whether you're dealing with depression, stress, anxiety, relationship issues, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, whatever it is, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. And best of all, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash other P-P-L. All right? Okay. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. Here we are. I have Dave Good uh Dave. I have Dave Goodwillie on the program. I have David Goodwillie on the program today. He is the author of several books, most recently a novel called King's County. Available now from Avid Reader Press, an imprint of Simon and Schuster. David Goodwillie is also the author of a novel called American Subversive, which was a New York Times notable book of the year and a memoir called Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time. He has written for a variety of publications, including the New York Times, New York Magazine, Newsweek, and Popular Science. Interestingly, he was once drafted to play professional baseball. You're going to hear us talk about that. He also worked as a private investigator. He's done a number of things. He was an expert at a uh, Sotheby's auction house. So an interesting background and, and uh, an interesting conversation with David Goodwillie coming up momentarily. I'm very pleased to have gotten the chance to talk with him and to meet him. I have been aware of him and his work for a number of years. Glad to have him on the show. I want to talk uh, briefly. I have a couple of things on my mind. First of all, it occurred to me last night as I was walking my dog just how wild it is the proliferation of interview podcasts in the world. Like it's, it's almost a joke at this point, or it is a joke at this point, how many podcasts there are featuring two people talking. It's like everybody has one. And not just like random 
people in their garage, but like celebrities, you know, people of uh, high media profiles. Like everybody's got a podcast, like Rob Lowe. <laughs> I was listening to uh, Conan O'Brien's podcast, which I like. You know, he's got some good conversations on there, and uh, it's funny. And then I heard a commercial, and it's like, I'm Rob Lowe. And I'm like, damn, even Rob Lowe's got a podcast. And it's fine. I don't care. I, I think it's great. And I I guess what is most fascinating to me is why. Like, yes, people like to hear themselves talk. I'm sure there's some rotten reason for why people are doing this. But I think, too, there's a lot of good reasons for why people do it and why it's popular, why people like to listen to people talking in an unscripted, unwieldy, personal, candid way. Why is that medicinal? That's what I think is most interesting about it. It's delivering something that we need. Is it not? Otherwise, everybody wouldn't be doing this. It's also easy to do. I think that gets lost in the shuffle sometimes. I know people will sometimes say, wow, it's amazing how you can talk to all these people. And I'm like, it's really not that amazing. And I'm not like self-denigrating. Let's be honest. It's not that hard to do a podcast. That's why people do them. Not everybody can do it, but a lot of people can. (laughs) Clearly. I guess not everybody, you know, not all podcasts are created equal, but it's just fascinating to me. It has absolutely exploded with no end in sight. And there's one for everybody. I mean, you know, like you can, if you don't think that there is a show for you, you just have not looked hard enough, you know? It's that infinite at this point. Another thing I want to talk about is this uh, project that I think I'm going to launch. I'm going to put myself on the hook and say it on this show because I'm already dreading it. And I'm already thinking like, I'm, I'm, there's no way this is going to be sustainable. But, uh, you know, as many of you know, I finished my novel over the summer. I'm finishing up, uh, you know, some, some revisions on the manuscript. And then once that's done, you know, it's going to be off to my agent and she's going to, you know, try to take it out or whatever. And I'm going to be sitting here in need of something to do. So I'm already thinking about what the next project is going to be. And it occurred to me that there's no way I'm going to be able to focus on anything but the election for the next couple of months. And really, you know, beyond that, it's got to, I got to get to inauguration day before I'm going to be able to breathe. It just feels like a genuinely momentous period in American history, consequential in the extreme and worth documenting. It could go either way. And I think what I'm going to do, and this is the big reveal is I'm going to uh, blog on a daily basis between I think the Tuesday after Labor Day and Inauguration Day. Win, lose, or draw, rain or shine, I'm going to try to document my experience of whatever it is that's happening right now. So if you want to follow along, you can. I'll, I'm sure we'll post a link on the uh, other people Twitter feed at other PPL. I'm not going to make it, you know, I'll probably mention it in the monologue a couple of times, but I'm not going to go crazy. Today's episode is brought to you by Red Hen Press, publisher of the novel Unseen City. 
by Amy Shearn. It's a multi-generational portrait of New York and the unexpected connections between a lonely Brooklyn librarian, a widower returning to his roots, and a ghost still lingering in a home that was once part of an activist-founded farming settlement. It's a wonderful novel. It also happens to be the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Kevin Baker calls it, quote, an absorbing read for all those who love Brooklyn, great writing, and the human spirit. Unseen City by Amy Shearn, available from Red Hen Press. You can get 40% off this book and your entire order for a limited time using the code OTHERPPL over at uh, the website shop.aer.io slash red underscore hen underscore press. Unseen City by Amy Shearn. All right, so let's get to the conversation with today's guest, David Goodwillie. His new novel, Kings County, is available now from Avid Reader Press. Great to have David on the program. Here he is, folks. This is David Goodwillie. It was, um, you know, it was, it was a, it was a solid month of feeling really crappy. I was just kind of, uh, just beneath the, um, hospital visit, um, level in terms of seriousness, but it was, you know, you just feel very vulnerable. You feel like your whole, you can feel your whole breathing apparatus. You can feel your lungs. Um, and you know, I went, got, got a test, the, it's kind of weird. The farther you were from New York City, the easier it was to get tested. It was almost impossible for any of my friends in the city to get tested back then. And um, up here, you could get tested no problem. Um, and just, um, you know, it was it just knocks you flat. Uh, but you yeah. made it. You made it through after about a month. Yeah, it was about a month. It kept coming back a bit. You start feeling better, and you're like, "Oh, I think I'm gonna try to go for a run or something." And then you just realize you go for about five minutes and you realize how actually sick you still are. And, um, but yeah, you get better. Uh, you take care of yourself. I went, uh, and got an antibody test as soon as I got to the city and, um, you know, I had a ton of antibodies. So that makes you feel a little better, um, about moving through the world and stuff. And, uh, got a second antibody test just to make sure the first one was accurate. Um, and I've felt better ever since. Obviously, I'm still very cautious and wear a mask and all that stuff. Uh, everyone in New York is pretty um, is being pretty safe and smart about it, which is why we've kept our rates down. I think in the last month or two, uh, everyone's wearing a mask. There is like mask shaming and stuff like that happening, and you get evil looks if you're not. And uh, people are being pretty smart about it, and it's um, you know it's paid off that way. That's good. That, that I mean, you know, like I don't want to like be ugly towards anybody, but I got to admit, I give dirty looks to people who just decide that like the rules don't apply to them. You know, public health is not a concern of theirs. <laughs> like, drives yeah. me drives me crazy. Yeah, it's, you know, and the indoor outdoor thing, I think, is proving to be a huge, uh, you know, COVID situation where if you're just if you spend all the time outdoors, you're going to be OK. And if um, you're indoors, you're in a bit of trouble. New York is not opening anything indoors, really restaurant or bar wise, which is smart. And I think that that's kept, um, you know, kept COVID away a bit. Uh, and, it, you know, it just the city feels a lot safer than it did uh, in May and June, where it was just absolutely a ghost town and eerie and just uh, just not the city, you, you, you know, that we all love. And that and that you uh, romanticize a bit in your latest novel. You know, there's like that I tend to yeah, romanticize in every single book I, I write, no matter if I try to or not. Yeah. I, I think that uh, there's something sort of funny or, or like uh, achingly funny about how. 
you know, you can look back wistfully at like post 9-11 New York as like a, <laughs> a much saner time in uh, American history somehow. Isn't that strange? You know, you always, I, I think as we're kind of growing up and growing older and living in a city, you always think everything's all messed up and then, you know, and the times are going to get better somehow. And they just, then you end up looking back fondly in those, at those years and saying how, how great everything was compared to the current moment. And um, <laughs> I don't know if that's just the way we all live or whether the current moment right now really is that fucked up. But um uh, I, yeah, the book, um, the years of the book are basically 2000 to 2011 and, um, in downtown Manhattan and, uh, North Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, those seem like incredibly special years now looking back on it, even though as you live through, you know, an era like that at the time, it doesn't, you know, it's just your life, uh, one year after the next, and it doesn't necessarily take on real meaning until a, a decade or two later. Why do you think it's special in terms of like the history of New York city or was it a particularly, um, vibrant period for the arts or something like that is that your view of it uh very much so first of all i think you know you mentioned 9-11 and there was a certain kind of communal feel that still was left over from that event that kind of uh lasted several years afterwards uh i think new york being a pretty um liberal city we were all kind of you know uh, the, the the bush era wars were were bringing people closer together and at least letting you know we all kind of were railing against against the same thing a bit. And um, artistically, uh, it was a very special time. I think um, there are certain geographical artistic movements that happen maybe once a decade or so in America. And uh, that was certainly one of them where, um, you know, uh, American music, indie music kind of had a geographic home and every band that wanted to make it moved to within, you know, 10 square blocks of each other in Williamsburg and Greenpoint. Brooklyn, um, whether it was the Strokes or Interpol or the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, a very specific kind of uh, musical uh, event was happening and everybody was playing with everybody and sleeping or sleeping with everybody. And it was just, um, uh, you know, I feel like it's happened. Um, you know, I've thought about it more since I've written the book. It happens almost once a decade on, you know, right on the on the dot, whether it's Nashville in the 50s or San Francisco in the 60s, Laurel Canyon in L.A. in the 70s. Detroit in the 80s, Seattle in the 90s, and definitely uh, Brooklyn in the um, in the 2000s. And I have a feeling that's kind of the last time it'll happen because music has become so so digitalized that you don't need the the real life geographic community like um, like you did in the past. And uh, uh, I wasn't really a part of it. I lived in um, downtown Manhattan. I never I didn't live in Brooklyn until uh, until several years after. Uh, the events in the book, but uh, I always looked and across the river with a kind of wistfulness, knowing that there was something special happening there, and uh, I would go and enjoy the music, of course, but uh, I was never really a part of it, and I think that that actually helped um, years later when I tried to write about it, having a kind of you know outsider's omniscience, uh, but I certainly wasn't a part of it at the time, and I'm not a musician or anything, but um, it was it was quite something to live through nonetheless. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you talk about all this because I just so happened to have recently finished the uh, oral history of that period in New York called Meet Me in the Bathroom. You, are you familiar with this? I'm very familiar, and I know Lizzie quite well, yeah. Oh, you do? Okay, yeah. I just, like, I've been trying to read lighter stuff at night. Like, I'm trying to read just, like, fun. Like, sometimes my literary tastes can be too serious and heavy, and I'll feel this obligation to, like, engage with really, like... Uh, 
not difficult, but you know what I'm talking about, like weightier books. And sure, I think sometimes that can mess with my sleep. And I feel like there's something to be said for just reading something that's fun. Uh, I think that that book was spectacular and I wasn't really expecting it to be oral histories uh, can be really tough. There's obviously a few that are uh, super famous. Um, you know, the George Plimpton uh, one about Edie Sedgwick kind of set the mark about what an oral history could be. Um, and then uh, the, the one I'm forgetting the name about uh, punk music uh, that was kind of the first real music one. Um, but the research that Lizzie Goodman did to get almost everybody to talk for that book and then to edit that book and make it a kind of a, a real conversation um, between incredibly disparate voices uh, that you can just, you know, uh, just read as almost as if you're reading a, a, a novel. It, it's just absolutely incredible. I have no idea how she did it. Half the people don't even want to talk about their bands or that era. Uh, and she kind of got in there and it was, I, I love that book so much. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I was, I've never lived in New York and I was reading it, you know, I'm 40, 45 years old now and I'm thinking about the early aughts and that, you know, that particular time. And there was a wistfulness in me too, like, damn, you know, <laughs> wish I'd have been there. Very much. So, yeah. <laughs> and you can see the struggle in the pages. You can feel what it was like to try to, to try to be breaking through to try to make it. I mean, you know, none of those musicians started out, you know, they were all kind of, you know, working five jobs and just playing in garages and, you know, warehouses. And, uh, it was just, and then, you know, a lot of them became very famous, uh, for a number of years. And it was just, I don't know how Lizzie did it. It was, is a wonderful book and it very much, uh, I'd obviously finished my novel by the time I read that, uh, or pretty close to finished, and um, I felt a bit like I was writing the fictional version of that, although there's only really one band in my book. But, um, uh, you know, you spend a, a long time trying to capture a, you know, a, a moment, an, an era uh, through fiction, and I think Lizzie did that through nonfiction just as well. I mean, just incredibly as well. Well, and I think, too, like, and I think this is something that your book has in common uh, with hers in terms of its approach to subject matter is that it can be really easy when you're portraying hipsters, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, to caricature them. Um, and I, you know, I'm using the word hipsters like just as like a broad generalization, but people in a, like a Brooklyn art scene or people in any kind of like rock and roll hive, see, you could easily do it with Seattle in the nineties or San Francisco in the sixties. It can be really easy to minimize and to sort of make a cartoon out of these people. And yeah. you seem to have a lot of affection, uh, for your characters and there's a seemingly strong desire to really humanize them and, um, you know, I, I share it, you know, like I, as much as we can point to bad behavior among ambitious young mm -hmm. rock bands, you know, like the, the, there is that the backbiting and the egos and all that kind of stuff. There's something, yeah. there's something sweet and beautiful about young people wanting to make music and make I, art. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to, um, or I find myself, resistant to this idea that we should be like bashing that reflexively. Yeah. I, I very much, I thought about that as I was for years, as I was writing this book and it very much comes from my experience in real life where 
all my friends who lived in Brooklyn and, um, you know, this can, is kind of a generalization, but the whole conversation about hipsterdom is a generalization, uh, no matter which way you're on what side of the kind of thing you're on. But everyone I knew was broke and working three or four jobs and, you know, running from restaurant to restaurant or, you know, music lessons or just taking classes, trying to do their band, trying to paint their paintings um, and barely making it in a kind of, you know, looking back on it romantic way. But at the time it was stressful for everybody. And I didn't know a lot of the kind of, you know, gawker hipster caricature of rich kids slumming it or, you know, that wasn't really the reality that I knew. Um, and I also, uh, you know, again, I wasn't deep in the scene, but I sure was out there a lot. And I lived my whole adult life in kind of downtown Manhattan and now Brooklyn. And uh, it just, sure, there were, you know, idiots that were just just wearing ridiculous shit to wear ridiculous shit or whatever, you know, whatever it was. But like most of that scene, it was really raw in a way of it was just the naked struggle of trying to be in the arts at the same time as you're in an expensive city. I mean, it's an age old struggle, but it was very much uh, on the surface of, of that of that scene at that time. And yes, the reason that happened in Williamsburg uh, was because rents were still cheap and it was close to the city where everybody had kind of jobs of some kind. And, um, and it was just at, at the same time, there were warehouses you could play in. There was a uh, industrial space you could, you know, try to do your art in. And it was, um, um, I don't know. I, I actually didn't use the word hipster in my book at all, even though that's obviously the kind of you know, the label of the, of the people I was writing about, uh, because I didn't want the eye rolling that, uh, has come to accompany that word. I, you know, I just, uh, it's, it always bothered me a bit. And so I really wanted to make these characters as humane as possible and as relatable as possible and to get out of that kind of, uh, mindset if I could. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. And I think too, there's something elegiac about the time framing in your book. Um, you know, beginning uh, the early aughts and then going up through the um, Occupy Wall Street, you know, and I feel like, you know, again, I might be inaccurate here or being overly simplistic, especially since I've never lived there. But it does seem like there was a lot of rapid change, like socioeconomically in New York. And that brought a lot of pressure, you know, especially on like the arts community places, you know, people trying to work multiple jobs and make rent and also make art. It's gotten, it's gotten increasingly hard to do that in New York based on the conversations I've been having over the years. Very much. I, I, and every year to some famous person says that you can't live in New York anymore and be an artist. I think the most recent was David Byrne. And I, I agree with that to some extent in that you can't have a huge loft in Soho and become a famous painter like that. But, um, the scene just moves a little farther out, you know, from Williamsburg to Bushwick to maybe Ridgewood now, uh, which is the next neighborhood out. And I wanted my characters to have a bit of that, too, whereas Audrey starts or Audrey's the female uh, protagonist in the book. And uh, she's living in Williamsburg when you first meet her. And then she's living with her boyfriend in Bushwick. And then perhaps she's there's a scene where she's on the roof gazing even farther, farther east. And is, is there another neighborhood that she can stay ahead of the kind of. Uh, crush of gentrification, even though she's a bit of a gentrifier herself. I mean, you can, you know, the history of New York is obviously the history of gentrification and it's, uh, it's an inevitable 
thing in um, if you're writing about young people in um, ethnic neighborhoods, uh, it's it, it, you can't not write about it. Um, but I wanted my characters uh, to kind of I didn't want that story to be about gentrification. I wanted, you know, they're not buying fancy places. They're not living in fancy new towers that's that are kicking uh, the former residents out. Um, but at the same time, they are a new group of people coming in um, to certain neighborhoods. But even in the book, I, I say, well, the, you know, the Italians that, that they're replacing replaced the Polish who replaced the Hispanic, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, I think it was Dominicans in Bushwick who were, who were, you know, who replaced the Dutch originally. Like, it's just, uh, it goes, you can take it back as far as you want. And um, nobody ever does when they're talking about gentrification. It's always a kind of a myopic, uh, this is what's happened in the last five years thing. But it's, um, yeah, uh, it, it, geography and writing about New York is always a bit fraught in that way. Yeah. So how long did it take you to write this book? A very long time. It took my last book. Uh, was called American Subversive. It was a novel. It came out in 2010. And um, I am not one of these writers. And I, I've listened to a lot of episodes of your show. And uh, sometimes you, you, you get into this with, with, with your guests. Uh, I'm not one of these writers who ends a book and the next day is ready to go on the next one. And uh, I can never figure out. I have a lot of friends who do that. And uh, I never know what I want to write next. It's just like I'm kind of exhausted from writing the last one and doing the press for the last one. And I have to kind of regroup for a year or two. Um, I also do um, kind of some long form investigative journalism, which I like a lot, which is, you know, kind of like a mini book in that you're invested in a world for three or four months instead of three or four years. Uh, so I started um, Kings County in 2013, I think, and uh, sold it in 2017. And then it was um, a bit of an editorial process that lasted two two years, two and a half years. So, um, you know, basically seven years I was working on it. And when you talk about an editorial process post-acquisition, I know that there's obviously some. that You know, you, a book gets acquired by a, a house and you work with your editor to fine-tune the book. But, like, it seems like the general trend is that, uh, you know, you have to have the thing close to – market ready in order to get acquired in the first place. It's not likely that uh, an editor is going to acquire a novel based on promise. Typically they want to get something that's in pretty close to finished form. Like how much work did you do? Right. Well, so as, as you know, you can't, you know, unless you're Stephen King or something, you have to write the book, uh, if it's fiction before you sell it, uh, nonfiction is a bit different in that way, but fiction, you almost always uh, write the book and then your agent sends it out, uh, pretty much as the, the, you know, finished or the writer always believes it's finished. And, um, then you have, uh, then if there are editors who are interested, you have a meeting before they bid on it. Uh, you know, they'll say, Oh, I love this book. Come in and let's talk about it. And in that meeting, uh, you talk about, they tell you, well, I love this, but I want to work on this with you. And it's, um, and you kind of, uh, when you're, you know, if you're lucky enough to have more than one uh, publisher who's interested, you take that meeting into account because you want to make sure you're speaking the same language as the person who's going to be acquiring and editing the book. And um, then if you do so, you know, I, uh, uh, my last book was with Scribner, which is an a imprint of Simon & Schuster. And this book was sold to an, a different imprint of Simon & Schuster. And the editor who bought it, uh, who's named Jofi Ferrari Adler, um, is a really great guy and a great editor, wanted to work on 
the plot in the second half of the book. And uh, he was kind of upfront about that. He's like, I love the character development in the first book, but I want a bit more plot. And I was, you know, a bit uncomfortable in the beginning. And I said, well, this is a very character driven book. Uh, my last book was quite plotty and I'm not sure I wanted this one to be as plotty. I wanted these two characters to, you know, I wanted the reader to go deep with two characters and the book um, we haven't really talked about it, is a love story. Uh, um, uh, between these two characters, Audrey Benton and Theo Gorski, who are both outsiders who come to New York from from some elsewhere in America and really like have to struggle to make it uh, in the city and uh, find each other after many years. Um, and it's a very unlikely love, but it's a very deep love. And uh, uh, the course of that love affair is basically, uh, to me, what the book is is about. But there's a there's a plot that that um, serves to unravel their their relationship in uh, in several ways. And that plot, the editor wanted to, my editor wanted to bring to the fore a bit. And uh, he said, look, we know these characters from from the earlier part of the book and let the re- trust the reader to, uh, you know, the, we don't have to have character development throughout the whole thing. And we went back and forth a lot on that. And I cut some chapters and added chapters. And it was really um, it was more editing than I ever thought. Uh, but as is usually the case, the book is much better for it. It's shorter, it's tighter. Um, and it is, uh, you know, I always, when I write, really try to walk a high wire between, you know, character driven literature and, you know, a plotty book. I don't, you know, I'm, I would consider myself a literary writer, but I'm not a, uh, flowery writer. I want to turn the pages. I want things to be happening. I want tension and suspense, but I also want a deepness and a richness to what you're reading. Um, and that is a, uh, that's a line that a lot of writers are always, um, trying to, to walk. And, um, that's what we were struggling with in the editorial process. I think that's a good impulse though. You know, that's certainly something I respond to, like both in my own work and as a reader, like, why can't we have both? (laughs) I I always love both. I mean, there's, you know, writers, there's, you know, there's writers like, uh, Emily St. John Mandel recently, she's always toying on that line. Um, you know, with keeping things moving and, and excitement, but also just rich character development or even a writer like Richard Price, um, who is, you know, uh, writes more uh, cop or, you know, uh, more suspenseful stuff is still a very, you know, he takes the time to have you get to know the characters well. Uh, it's, I don't know. I also think that every book, uh, uh, the way I'm interested in being a writer is I want every book I write to be different than the last. Uh, and I think that that's a pretty good definition of, of a literary writer, somebody who doesn't want to repeat themselves, who wants to try something new. It's not always going to work as well as the last book. Um, but I always, you know, I, I've, once I finished a book, I'm, I, I feel like I've done that and I want to try to do something quite different. And part of it is a bit of a, a chip on my shoulder, I guess, about trying to be, a, you know, a, a writer's writer, trying to be a literary writer. And the other part is I get bored. I would never want to write the same kind of book or the same, you know, character book after book. And um, it just keeps me absolutely, you know, um, it keeps me really interested in what I'm doing because it's, it does take years for me to write a book and I want, you know, I don't want to get two years into something and be like, oh, I, I, you know, I've done this before and now I'm kind of, you know, losing interest. I really want to stay excited. And for me, it is that journey of, um, trying something new, uh, that, that keeps me 
totally, you know, interested in what I'm doing. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So I want to ask you a little bit more about the transition from finishing a book, going into a sort of lull where you're recharging your batteries to beginning a new project in earnest. Mm -hmm. Because I'm, I just finished a book, this is kind of a selfish question, but I, I'm in that space right now. And I have this sort of idealistic vision of myself, uh, chain smoking, just like finishing one, starting the next thing and just keeping the ball rolling. <laughs> but I, it also, I also want it to be authentic. I don't want to just force something out of me just for the sake of generating material. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I want it to come from a, like a true emotional place. And, uh, I think I need that in order to sustain my interest and energies over the long haul for a book. But like, can you talk about how you get there? Yeah. A lot of it is a weird confidence, like a self-confidence in just knowing that you can get there and not worrying about, um, the full picture of having a finished book. I have never have any idea how a book is going to end when I start it. I always start it with, with characters I like and want to develop more. I have no idea what they're going to do or how they're going to interact really. Uh, I usually have a geographic setting and a time period I kind of want to explore. Uh, and sometimes for me, it comes down to a simple word. Like my first, my first book was a memoir, so I'm not going to count that in because obviously you have the story for that. And the art and memoir comes in what you kind of leave out rather than what you put in, in terms of making it a real structured narrative arc that, you know, um, kind of, uh, you know, can symbolize a, a very chaotic, uh, choppy life that nece isn't necessarily great for, um, uh, for, for stories and books. Um, but my first book, I wanted to write about politics in some way. I wanted to write about what was bothering me in the real world. And this was 2008, 2009, and when the, you know, the kind of America was turning against the wars in the Bush administration. Uh, but I didn't want to write about it directly. I never want to write about what I want to write about directly, if that makes any sense. And I just... Uh, I came up with this idea for these political, these people who come become kind of weather underground-ish political radicals, but in in the in 2010 rather than uh, 1969 and 1970, uh, but liberal radicals that kind of are are white and it's not Islamic terrorism at all. It's kind of domestic 
you know, white domestic terrorism um, that kind of symbolized a lot of the Vietnam era. I was like, what if that happened again? And uh, what would that look like? And how do I tell a story, an engaging story that has its roots in really serious stuff? And um, so that was kind of my political book. And then I finished it. And I didn't want to write anything political again. I was like, I've done that. Now I want to write about love, about relationships in this age of, you know, short attention spans. How do two people go deep with each other in this kind of like weird uh, electronic world that's developed around us? And um, so I started with the two people for Kings County and I, I and I had a a very strong idea of who they were. And then I had a very strong idea of where I could put them in, you know, geographically and in this kind of burgeoning music scene that was, um, incredibly exciting, uh, to live through. And then, uh, then the plot kind of came as it, and it's very cliched, but you start to, you start to kind of the characters write themselves a bit. You get to know them so well that you you know how they'll react in given situations. And yes, as the writer, you have to give them the situations, but um, uh, they kind of find their way in the world a bit. And um, so I did that. And that was my kind of love. This was kind of my love story book. Um, and now I'm going to write another novel that's kind of based on money and what money does to people. And, I, you know, it can be as easy as coming up with one word like that and then building a world around it if you can. Uh, and to me, that's just, um, it, it, I don't know, every writer is very different as you, as you know from interviewing so many of them, but uh, that's how I kind of move through my career and keep things interesting for myself and also I'm able to write books that are, are, are different and engaging in different ways. So, okay, so when you were coming out of uh, American Subversive and then you start to get an inkling that you want to write about love and connection in the age of distraction. And then you start to conceive of the characters. You start to see Audrey. Um, I don't know who came to you first, whether it was Theo or Audrey, but you start to have these, these characters materializing in your brain. Like at what point does it become uh, clear to you that you've got what you need to sustain your energies for the novel? Is it just the depth of understanding of those characters? Is that where it begins? Yeah. I, I always knew like I, that there's a scene. Uh, so the novel has, um, it takes place in 2011, the kind of front story. And then there are these flashbacks every few chapters, uh, of the characters as they're kind of, um, starting in 2000 as they're, uh, you know, still back home. Audrey's from Cape Canaveral, uh, a trailer park in Cape Canaveral, about five minutes from the launch pads. And she she grows up watching the space shuttle launches every few months and dreaming of, of, of a bigger world and something out there. And she her parents are kind of not in her life. She's living with her grandmother. Uh, and she knows at some point she has to get out of there and has to find the, the larger world. Uh, Theo, meanwhile, the male character is from Lawrence, Massachusetts, uh, a, a mill town um, in the Merrimack Valley. And his father and his grandfather have all worked at the same AT&T plant. Uh, his brother is working there now and the plant's closing and he falls in love with books. And um, his way out is through the library. His way out is reading about the, a larger world. And uh, uh, I just these characters were so strong to me. Um, that as I started to write, I wrote some of those flashback scenes first. There's a scene, I think it's the fourth chapter in the book, 
where you first get to Audrey's backstory. And she's the scene takes place in 2000, year 2000 in Cape Canaveral. And it's her realizing she has to break away from her grandmother and she has to start her own life. She's 23 years old and still living in a trailer park. And she wants to be an actress, but she's kind of half in, half out. Uh, She keeps seeing these bands come through Florida and realizing they all live in New York and someplace called Williamsburg, New York. And she she needs to get out. She needs to take the Greyhound to the city and, and try her luck and start her life. And in that way, I was able to kind of start the book the way she's starting her life. And um, those flashbacks, because uh, the larger plot's not really involved in them, the flashbacks, as they get closer to, to uh, the, the front action in 2011, start to explain what the what's happening in the front story. Um, but in those first chapters, it's just all character it's 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 um it's kind of just explaining who these people are and how they move through the world and in that way i got into them quite far before i actually had to worry about plot and then i layered the plot over it starting in chapter one where we get the initial like you know uh, there's a big party going on and it turns out somebody's missing and they don't know if he's been murdered or committed suicide or what's going on um, but at that point, I had the idea for the I, I knew who the characters were so much. I knew who they how they would react to situations. Um, and it really is, uh, for me, a wonderful way of, of writing because I don't have to worry about the plot until I know who the characters are. Uh, but I didn't again, like I didn't know what the second half of the book was until I was was going to be plot wise until I was well into the writing of the first half of the book. And um even in edits, the book changed a lot. Uh, it became a bit more suspenseful. And, um, uh, it, you know, I don't know. It just for me, I'm never worried about the plot. I'm never worried about what how I'm going to get readers to turn the pages. Um, and I think it could be paralyzing a bit if you are worried about that so much. I'm not a writer who writes um, timelines and, like, breaks down chapters on – on you know precisely and stuff like that and i know some writers are and that works for them but for me it doesn't work because it would just um it would kind of paralyze me in some ways i think i need to find my way through a book and i need to find my way to a story and um uh, as you as you know like every writer does this differently but for me that's the way i write and it requires a lot of revision to write this way uh hence my (laughs) seven years working on this book uh but it's what works for me well, and it takes a lot of trust. I think sometimes what I struggle with and what I imagine other writers might struggle with is the anxiety that can come from working on something with no clear idea of exactly what it is or how it's going to unfold. Like I'm imagining like writing those early s- sketches of Audrey in Florida in the trailer park where you're kind of getting, you know, you're kind of explaining the character to yourself first before you very much so. really get, yeah, before you get into the meat of the story and, and portraying her to your reader and you have to have a certain patience and confidence and trust in the process because, you know, you get two, three, four months into it or even longer and things still feel really messy. I think a lot of people can maybe take that as an indication that it's not working or they could abandon it out of some sense of frustration. Do you know what I'm saying? Very much so. And I, I, I have that trust in writing and I'm willing to like 
I, I, I'm so, um, I can be so impatient in other parts of my life, but I'm not impatient when it comes to writing books and I know I'm going to find it at some point, or I, I, I think I'm going to, it's not something I really worry about because it is really a day to day thing. And you're kind of, uh, in the same way we were talking about what it's like to live through a, you know, an artistic era, uh, you're living through this novel and you're not, I'm not necessarily looking at the bigger picture all the time. I'm just trying to get through the writing of that day. And, uh, so I just, I'm able to kind of see the longer picture. It helps to have written books before. So, you, you know, I, I feel like I know I can do it now, even though it's my third book. Uh, uh, you know, I'm uh, sometimes I'm just, sometimes I'm just like, I can't, I don't know if I can do this, but then I'm like, I've done it twice before. Of course I can do it. Like just keep plugging away and you'll get there. Um, but it is such a strange thing to be writing books at this time in history when, of course, we have 10-minute attention spans. Um, I was listening to an episode you did with Danielle Tresoni a few months back, and you guys got deep into this where everything else in our lives is screens and and just uh, background noise and just, uh, you know, how do you shut that out to write, to spend you know, two, three, four years on a project. And it's very difficult and it takes a very specific mindset to do that. Um, and I think fewer and fewer people are willing to do that or are capable of doing that, which is why so many people are writing for TV now that are great writers or, you know, uh, doing other stuff than writing long form fiction. Um, but I still love uh, writing novels. It's It's something I somehow think I'm equipped to do when I might not be equipped to do a lot of other stuff. So, yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I feel like as you write, you know, you, you get past the first book and the second book and you've done this a few times. It's amazing in the course of writing a book, uh, how you can have days where it really does feel like all is lost and <laughs> the emo the emotional content of the day to day experience I don't know if this is the same for you, but I just noticed this, you know, over the past year working on my book, like there would be days where I'd be like, this is so fucked. And then <laughs> two days later, I'll be like, this is brilliant. Like this is working so well. That roller coaster <laughs> and, is something that every writer experiences and it is unexplainable. And some days you're like, what, the, what am I doing? This is so stupid. These sentences don't even follow each other. Like <laughs> at a basic level, you just completely break down. You're like, I can't write a sentence. And then other times you'll look back, you know, uh, on a day's work or a week later on something you've written, you'd be like, God damn, like it fits together. Like that's exactly what I was trying to say. This is beautiful. That's a beautiful paragraph. That's a beautiful page. And it is, it's something that's a very private thing. It's an individual thing. I don't think a lot of writers going around, go around saying, Oh, I totally just, <laughs> had a full-on breakdown today but yesterday was great you know it's like it's a it's a private roller coaster you ride and it is what being a writer it's the definition of being a writer um and it's just it it, it never it's never ending there is no like you don't get off the ride uh even when a book is finished you're kind of like i'm i'm between books right now i'm you know doing some press for this book but i'm starting to think about the next one but some days I'm like, I've got the greatest idea for the next book. And then the next day I'll be like, that is so stupid that I would start a book out with an idea like, you know, like, and you just, um, you know, you start writing the book when the, uh, the bad thoughts kind of dissipate and the good ones take over, uh, for long enough. And you're like, okay, this is a good idea. I'm going to run with it. 
Um, but I will take that time. I'm not a writer who has like three books I've written in a drawer. Um, uh, and a lot of writers don't mind that. And they just are churning and churning and writing and writing. I want to make sure when I get into a, pro- a project that like I'm going to see it through to the end because I don't want to get a year or a year and a half into something and then be like, wait a minute, what am I doing? This isn't working. Um, but every writer is different like that. We were talking about Stephen Graham Jones, who's written 21 books or something. And I was on a mini tour with him earlier in the year and we were on a bus going to a, a, a party with booksellers and he was like writing. And I'm like, it's a 15 minute bus ride. And I'm like, Stephen, are you, what are you writing? He's like, Oh, I'm writing this, my next book. And it was, I couldn't believe it. Like in a 15 minute stretch, he's, it's important enough to him uh, to always be writing that he has got his notebook out and off, and he's going and he's writing some dialogue scene. I couldn't believe it. It's the farthest <laughs> thing from my mind, but to him, he need, you know, he needed that. And, uh, that's how he works. And, um, that's what makes writing so interesting. It's just, is it's what I love talking process with other writers. Even now, I love trying to figure out how their minds work, uh, what they take in from the real world, how they process it into fiction. Um, I know I'm a, I know I should be a writer because when I read, when I watch movies, I just watch the movies for fun. But when I read a book, I'm thinking about why the writer's making the choices he or she is making. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, my, my brain just processes a, a book in a different way than it does other art forms. And that always kind of gives me hope that perhaps I've found the right profession. Does it diminish your enjoyment at all? Like when you're reading deconstructively like that? Uh, no, because if it's a really good writer, I'm so into the choices they're making. Um, even if a book isn't working out and maybe like Zadie Smith is a great example. I think she's one of our great, contemporary authors but every book she writes is very different in novels i'm talking about not her essays uh and some for me work better than others but every single one she's trying to do something very different than she's done before or that that many people have done before and i just love as a reader seeing her take those chances uh to me it's just it's really exciting uh, even if they don't, to me, work as well as some of her other work might. Um, so no, it never diminishes the experience. And then if I'm writing, reading a, you know, a writer who's a more commercial writer, uh, I'll even read, you know, something like The Da Vinci Code or something because, you know, the guy's selling millions of books and how is he making people turn pages? And I'm fascinated by how he ends chapters, for instance, even though they're a page and a half long often. But the cliffhanger nature of you know, a kind of much more commercial literature is very interesting to me, even though I might not employ it in that kind of obvious way uh, that a writer like he will. But um, I like reading all kinds of stuff. I take bits from all, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of genres. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just even if it doesn't w- work its way into my own fiction, uh, I think I'm a fuller writer for it. Yeah, I struggle with um this idea of like, you know, this is maybe a melodramatic way of putting it, but there has to be blood on the page. I feel like in order for me to find the energy to want to write a book or to even feel justified in some sense, like I, I wish I were more of a writer who could just get like really enraptured by some story that I'm coming up with. Yeah. For me, I feel like it has to be personal. Even if what's on the page is a fiction and, you know, the characters are representations of some part of me, but I have to get to a place where I feel like there's a real 
sense of of personal stakes on the page, if that makes sense. And it does make like, sense, uh, yeah. And, and th- that's different, though, than writing, you know, taking scenes and characters from your real life and putting them, you know, making them into fictional characters, which I get asked about all the time. Oh, is Audrey like, uh, you know, a woman you know in real life? Is Theo, you know, no, they're they're not. But the what I'm writing about them is, and the situations I'm putting them in are in a lot of ways. And it's stuff I want to, it's stuff I'm struggling with and it's in, in the real world. And, you know, writers are so great at asking questions and so bad at providing answers, but I think that that's fine. I think that that's kind of our role is to make people think through stuff. And, and in that way, I mean, I guess that's my blood on the page. I'm trying to like figure out, I'm trying to like ask big questions through story and it's just sometimes it's very difficult and you don't want it to be obvious but I want to like I want to work through this stuff that's bothering me but in a way that the reader almost never even realizes that and you know they're just enjoying a story uh about two people and um uh, I don't want them to see all the background blood as you put it, all this stuff that like you're churning with that you're uh, exuding and just struggling with all the time. It's not, um, you know, that's kind of the writer's job is to, is to paint over that stuff a little bit, but, um, have it be there and have that be the engine of the book at the end of the day. Between the private roller coaster image and bleeding all over the page, we're really making, we're really selling this. (laughs) That's very true. I want to say too, you know, you talk about wanting to do something different with each book, which I totally connect with. I think it's a good idea. You know, like why, why repeat yourself? Why not give yourself the challenge of, uh, exploring something new, but at the same time, I see a line of connectivity from book to book that I'm sure you probably notice as well. It might be a question of emphasis perhaps, but you know, just in terms of like the, the backstories of your characters in Kings County, you know, coming from these sort of blue collar, um, you know, childhoods, uh, and making their way to New York city, you know, you talk about wanting to do a book about money. Uh, I feel like money is an issue in this one. It's just not necessarily maybe right at the front in the way that relationship is. Yes. I'm always interested in writing about class as well and issues of money. I think it's, um, especially in a place like New York, it's, uh, we're around it so much, the haves and have nots and the, People who have no money and pretend they have a lot and and the complete opposite of that, the people that are slumming it but have secret trust fund. There's, you know, there's so many aspects to that. And we're all kind of weaving in and out of those questions. And of course, now in the political moment we're in, uh, they take on a much larger meaning. But uh to me in the book, this was an opportunity having these two working class kids. Uh, you know, kids, they move in their mid twenties to New York, but, um, two working class protagonists come to New York and be struggling for so long. I wanted to show a lot more of that. So there's a character named Chris who works at a bank who is kind of, um, uh, dating Audrey's best friend, Sarah. And they just, there's this other couple, Chris and Sarah, who play off of Audrey and Theo in terms of Sarah's gone for the money. She lives on the Upper East Side and, you know, and has stopped working or works at Sotheby's auction house, kind of in a 
uh, you know, in a half job because uh, she doesn't need to work anymore. And um, meanwhile, her former best friend is still struggling in Brooklyn and doing what she loves, but living hand to mouth almost. And uh, I, uh, to me, issues of money and class are, are make a novel uh full in so many ways uh it's why i wanted to have occupy wall street in there i thought that that was even though with what's going on now with black lives matter it seems like a you know a century ago rather than a decade it was an incredible movement when it was happening and it in a lot of ways it didn't make sense it was uh why then why um it was kind of leaderless why did the city even let it go on you know like and for months, uh, uh, the way people reacted to it, uh, it was just a, a fascinating moment um, where for a little while, young people actually had a voice and uh, what they were protesting was, you know, economic inequality, and uh, which is a very broad kind of thing to rail against, but also uh, one of the most important things to, you know, one of the topics that, we're, that we've been dealing with for the last 25 years in this country. Um, why did it disappear so quickly? Was it really just a geographic thing with, as soon as the, the, the cops came in and fire hosed the, the park, that was it. Uh, we all thought it would come back together at some point because it had been so strong, but it turned out that it was really that geographic park, uh, that made all the difference. And once it was, it couldn't really continue online. It was just such a fascinating thing and again i wasn't really a part of it i was down there a lot but i was much more of a, a gawker walking around kind of uh amazed and thrilled and horrified and all that stuff and i knew i would end up writing about it because um it just encapsulated so much of what new york was at that moment uh it made it very easy to put the present day of the book it was important enough to me that i made the timeline of the book kind of surround that uh, that time period. And so everything happened. The four story in the book happens in 2011, which is when that was happening. And um, but uh, issues of money and the way people react to it uh, are uh, always at the forefront of, of what I write about. You know, I'm thinking about uh, those issues in the present in the present context where you know, we have the pandemic and the resulting economic collapse and all of the difficulty that we're facing in terms of just getting things running. Um, but also, you know, people under enormous economic pressure who were already under pressure to begin with, you know, and then suddenly you put COVID on top of it and it just ratchets up the intensity. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you've noticed this in New York. I've certainly detectably started to notice it in Los Angeles that people are moving out. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate it. It's not like some mass migration, at least not yet, but I'm curious to know if you've sensed any of that in New York city. I, I know I've been reading stories here and there about, you know, people who are like, okay, that's it. We're out. We're selling our apartment in lower Manhattan and we're moving to, uh, you know, the Hudson Valley or whatever it is. Like, is there, uh, like, are you sensing like detectable shifts and migratory patterns and behavior changes and lifestyle changes as a result of what we're going through? Um, yes. And if you had asked me two months ago, I would have said that the press is kind of making that up and nobody's really leaving the city and this is going to be over by the end of the year. And uh, I, I don't think I, I, I don't think I was right about that. I think people really are packing up and moving and a place like New York 
even in the best of times is a real pain in the ass to live in sometimes, especially if you have young kids and, uh, you know, COVID is a breaking point for a lot of people. They don't, you know, besides the fact of getting sick, I mean, the stuff that you live in New York for the art scene, theater, uh, sports, um, you know, sh music shows like all that stuff is, isn't happening. And so restaurants are, aren't open or, you know, at least on the inside of restaurants. Uh, so if you start looking around and you do have a young family or you're an older person, it's very easy to start to wonder why you're still living in the city if all the best parts of the city aren't available to you, uh, but all the worst parts still are uh, in terms of you know expensiveness, in terms of um, living in close proximity to you know a lot of people during a pandemic. All you know, so yes, people are moving and. Uh, Prices for apartments have noticeably gone down for the rental apartments in New York. Uh, prices in the suburbs and the Hudson Valley and well, the Hamptons, it's always high, but, you know, have, have gone up appreciably. And um, I don't know if that's a trend that's going to continue. Um, I'd assume for the next year or two it'll be like that. But I, I'm, a, I'm always a New York optimist. I never get tired of the city. I've, I've lived there you know, for 25 years, basically. Uh, I can't imagine that it wouldn't be a great city in two years and three years still. In fact, you know, everybody was complaining a year or two ago that it was so boring and the artists couldn't be there anymore and it was too expensive and it was all hedge fund towers and all this stuff. And maybe this makes the city a bit more approachable to young people. Maybe it makes it a bit more exciting anymore. I don't think anybody wants it to go back to 1976, but, um, you know, a lot of stuff came out of that era too, including punk music and a great club scene and all, you know, like it just, it, I, I think it's a city that's uh, constantly changing and experiencing up and downs. Um, I still love being, being in New York, um, but I hope it doesn't become a ghost town. I think one other aspect of that is uh, working from home and what's going to happen to a place like Midtown Manhattan that's all, you know, a commercial district that's all uh, uh, um, uh, offices. And if this continues, if, if large companies decide they don't need floor after floor after floor of, uh, of space, um, what happens to the heart of Manhattan, you know, in the financial district downtown? Uh, I don't think, it, you know, it's a weird question that nobody's had to answer. So uh, we'll see what happens. Affordable housing. Affordable housing, a shocking, shocking idea in 2020. Right. I mean, just take those skyscrapers and re reconfigure them and, and put some apartments in there that people can actually afford. Yeah. But then again, I have uh, visual artist friends who all of a sudden have the best spaces they've ever had because uh, they can afford studios again. So, uh, you know, it, there's so many sides to these coins. It's difficult to to game out how, how something's going to uh, survive or not. So I want to shift gears. I want to ask you about uh, you, like where you're from. I have no sense of your, uh, of your, uh, you know, your personal history. So where are you from? Uh, I am, uh, I have a very weird story to becoming a writer. Um, I think a lot of writers probably do. Uh, I was born in Paris and I grew up in London. My parents were American um, but my dad was just working overseas as a, as a lawyer and kind of raised his hand and said he'd go anywhere this law firm wanted him to go. And so he's kind of, uh, we, I didn't move to America till I was, um, pretty much in my teens. And, um, uh, 
I bounced around after that to DC to New York to Baltimore. Uh, my parents were split up, and then I ended up in college and at Kenyon College in Ohio, and uh, which is a, a, a small liberal arts school, but with a huge writing um, kind of reputation. The Kenyon Review obviously is from there. A uh, the ton of famous writers have gone there: Caleb Carr, Yale Doctorow, John Green, the great YA writer. Um, and I kind of went there with an idea that to I kind of like love to read and I kind of wanted to maybe be a writer. Uh, and I got there and I went to an English class and everybody was so much smarter than me and so much more well-read, uh, that I freaked out and became a history major. And I was like, I don't, I can't be a novelist like all these earnest young men and women who are, you know, talking about books I've never even heard of. And so I never wrote a word when I was there. Um, I did play baseball, uh, and ended up being drafted, um, into the pros. Um, but that was pretty short lived. And I moved to New York, uh, when I was 23 years old and proceeded to spend a decade in the most random jobs you could imagine. I was a private investigator for the world's largest investigative agency. I was an expert at Sotheby's auction house. I ran their sports and collectibles department, um, I wrote the dot-com boom up and down, and the whole time I wanted to write, but I was too scared to. I didn't get an MFA or try to get an MFA. I didn't, you know, I would write a couple terrible short stories and never send them out. And finally, I was like 30 years old. I turned like turned 30, and I, you know, had a kind of moment where I was like, I moved to the city to be in the arts to to try to be a writer, and I haven't written anything and how do I don't know anyone in publishing I would go to uh, actually it's a restaurant that's in uh, there's a scene in Kings County uh, that takes place in Cafe Loop uh, which is spelled L-O-U-P which means wolf in French and uh, it just closed last year because they didn't pay their taxes but it was this great restaurant that was kind of the beating heart of the downtown literary scene such as it was and you could go in there and like Gay Talese or Joan Didion would be like sipping martinis in the corner and the agents would be a buzzing at the bar and the editors would be having lunch or dinner with their authors. And it was this amazing scene for years and years and years, like, but like a mature scene. And, um, I would sit at the bar by myself, just listening to this, you know, with the New Yorkers parish review or something propped up in front of me and just listen to this, like, this literary talk all around me. And so I knew the world existed. I just didn't know how to break into it. I didn't know one person in publishing. My parents were lawyers. And um, eventually I figured out that uh, the way to break in is to write something. So uh, I didn't have the courage or experience or know how to write a novel. But I did realize that I just lived this kind of a weird and wonderful in some ways decade in downtown New York trying to like make a go of it. And what if I wrote a memoir? And it was kind of the golden age of memoir. It was, you know, Dave Eggers kind of broke, broke memoir open with um, heartbreaking work of staggering genius. And all of a sudden you could be a younger person and write, um, you know, write memoir. Whereas 10 years before that you couldn't, you have to be a famous person or an ex president and like uh, memoir wasn't really a thing. Um, and then, you know, Mary Carr, Dave Eggers, uh, um, all these, you know, people kind of started, uh, writing, um, not autobiography, but memoirs much more. Well, you know, I think a good way to describe it is you can write about an aspect of a person's life. It can be one relationship. It can be one weekend. It can be a job. It can be a much smaller, um, uh, segment 
of a person's life and all of a sudden it can be a book and uh and and you can be young and do it you don't have to be 70 years old and massively established and distinguished and so i did i wrote this memoir about uh kind of if it had a theme it was that we're not supposed to have stuff figured out when we're 23 years old and it it's totally fine to like try to find your way for 10 years, whether it's in relationships or jobs or, or anything really. Um, and that maybe in America we decide who we need to be or, or people tell us we need to decide who we need to be earlier than we should before we really know who we are. And, um, that was a book and it was, I finished it. I wrote it, a lot of it at the Chelsea hotel and it was called seemed like a good idea at the time. And I found an agent the old fashioned way at a bar and I, uh, um, she sent it out and I sold it. I got really lucky and, uh, it sold to Algonquin books, um, which is a wonderful indie publisher, uh, based in, uh, Chapel Hill. And, um, all of a sudden I was a writer and I still had no idea how to write. I felt like, and, um, I figured maybe, you know, unless you're David Sedaris memoir after memoir, isn't the way to go. And so I knew I had to shift gears and try to write a novel and, um, and so I did. And uh, again, it was that confidence we're talking about. Like all of a sudden I had done it once, so maybe I could do it again, even though a novel is quite different than a memoir. In the way, a book is still a book. And if you've done it once, you can do it again. And uh, and that's kind of how my career started. I was, I was always scared to be around other writers. I still am not really ever a part of writing groups or anything like that because I still have that nagging feeling that if I have six smart people telling me six different things, that my head is going to explode. Um <laughs> But uh, and so I wait till much until a book is almost done before I have a couple close friends who are writers read it and, um, you know, help me with stuff. But um, that's that was kind of my journey. And uh, it's a weird one for sure. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack. Like, first of all, your (laughs) your your itinerant expatriated childhood interests me. So you how like how long were you in Paris? Like what where like where specifically did you live and for how long? Uh, I think it was two or three years. Like I can barely remember it. Um, we lived, uh, right near the Eiffel tower, right off the Champ de Mar. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, uh, I, I see pictures of myself as a, as a kid in a stroller, but besides that, I don't really remember it, but I always have, I've lived in Paris several or in France several times since then. And, uh, kind of became a Francophile because of my, my, my early childhood, I think. But then we moved to uh, uh, London and um, I really grew up in London um, and, uh, you know, had an English accent. When I moved to, to America, I had an English accent and uh, had, you know, played I played cricket and I was just not an American kid at all. And I think to try I was at, it was at that weird age where you kind of are trying to find an identity and um I think I played, started playing baseball because it was the most American thing I could do. And, uh, for some reason I just ended up being pretty good at it. And, uh, it carried me through, you know, for the next 10, 10, 15 years of my life. But, um, yeah, it was weird. I wasn't, you know, I was American, but I'd never been, um, never been to America, but I remember going to like, uh, even at a really young age, like seven, eight years old, going to Harrods, the famous apartment store in Knightsbridge and um, a department store and uh, going to their book 
section and sitting there all day with like, you know, the fabulous five and the choose your own adventure books and asterisks and Tintin and all that stuff. And just devouring book after book after book. And, uh, um, you know, the one consistent thing with writers, even though every story of becoming a writer is different, every writer is a reader and that's really how they start. Like that's just inescapable. And, um, uh, for me, that's definitely true. Okay. So baseball, like when did you get to the States and when did you start playing baseball? What age? Uh, like 10 years old, uh, probably 11. Um, so I was in little league and then, um, I played in high school. I wasn't very good. And then in college, uh, Kenyon's a division three school. So it's not like a serious baseball school. Uh, and I was okay. I was a starter my freshman year, but I wasn't great. And then I turned around, I'm right-handed and I turned around and started batting lefty one day. And I had this, like, I had like a perfect left-handed baseball swing. I mean, not to brag, I don't know how else to talk about it. It was like the most fluid swing, uh, you can imagine. I was good at other sports, but I wasn't great at other sports, but I was really fast and I had this great swing all of a sudden. And, um, for the next two years, I was really, uh, my junior and senior year, I was really good. And I was captain of the team and scouts started coming my senior year. Uh, baseball's even division three. It's a bit more serious in the Midwest than it is other parts of the country. Like lacrosse isn't as big as it is in the East coast and, you know, golf and tennis aren't as big in the, you know, it's just, it's it, the Midwest is real baseball country. And, um, so I went to all these tryouts. I mean, my memoir, uh, the first chapter is me trying out for the Cincinnati Reds and it doesn't go very well, but like it was, you know, it was pretty serious. Uh, the, the level I was trying to compete at was pretty serious. And so I got drafted, um, into a league called the frontier league, which is single a ball, uh, and spent a summer, uh, kind of playing a little bit, but mostly riding pine and, um, uh, got released and moved to, you know, I, I was out there. All my friends thought it was the most glamorous thing. They'd all moved to New York and Chicago and were in the world's shittiest jobs. And, uh, you know, they would tell me they were coming to road trip out to see me. And I'd be like, please don't, I'm not playing. I'm like warming up the bullpen pitchers. Uh, it's not cool. Like don't come, but like there were no cell phones back then. So we were like on pay phones. Meanwhile, I was like, this isn't as glamorous as it sounds to the outsider. And all my friends are in New York starting bands and waiting tables at cool restaurants and like trying to, you know, starting their lives. And like, I need to be there. So even then, even when I'm, you know, uh, uh, supposed to be having the time of my life, I was thinking about New York and how I could get there and, uh, that I just wasn't in the right place. Um, and, and the, the problem solved itself. Cause, uh, I wasn't really good enough to hang on for too long, but, um, the jump from college to the pros is a huge jump. There's, you move from aluminum to wooden bats, you, the, all the Latin guys show up who are so great. Um, you know, all this stuff that is just, um, it's a, it's a big jump that wasn't quite my speed. <laughs> what was your, what was it? What was your position? Uh, center field. I was really fast. Like, uh, if I got on base, basically I stole second and third and it was like little league in some, some ways. And I just, um, um, you know, ended up, uh, you know, th that's speed is one thing that all the scouts are looking for speed and a good swing. And, and, uh, they'll, you, they figure they can teach you the rest. Well, on the arm too, I remember you said you tried out for the Cincinnati Reds, like just coincidentally, cause I was raised uh, part of my childhood in Indianapolis. You know, the Reds used to host like tryout camps for like high school age kids. Uh-huh. 
like kind of open call. You know how they do that? They have like an open mm-hmm. call and they'll have like basically skills tests for young guys to come out and show their stuff. But they're timing you from first. As I recall, I remember going. I didn't try out, but I just remember watching it because it was on, on, at a field near my house. And there was a guy. They were timing you from home to first. And then they would time your throw from third to first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like there were certain benchmarks that if you didn't hit it, you were just automatically ruled out. Like yeah. you had to be able to get from home plate to first base and like, what is it, like under six seconds or something like that. You yeah. know, I, so basically you ha- that's what I did. I, mine was for college kids, my tryout there. So, and it's an invite tryout. You get sent a letter. But it was at the old Riverfront Stadium, which was AstroTurf. And uh it's all sprints. They're sitting there timing you. You get 10 swings that will change your life or not. And, um, you know, they, they stick you in dead center field and have you throw to the plate. And my arm was actually my weakest part. Like, I just never had a strong arm. And I remember these kids were just, like, throwing ropes to home plate from, like, the warning track in 410 feet away. And I was like, I, I, this is going to be a disaster for me. I can't do that. And so I basically threw my arm out on the first two throws. And my last throw was just this like rainbow thing that like bounced on the mound and kind of just stopped there. It was terrible. <laughs> the whole stadium just went silent. And I just wanted to disappear. It was the worst. But um, yeah, that's exactly how tryouts work. And uh, um, I remember it was like 100 degrees. And it just, you know, needless to say, the Reds did not draft me. Well, you know, I don't think I've talked to too many, but you did get drafted. Uh, I did, yes. Uh, By whom? So the Frontier League's an independent league. There's two independent leagues uh, that are that are basically paid for by. Um, uh, by Major League Baseball and by the teams, but they're uh, the Northern League, which is up in the Northern Midwest, and then the Frontier League, which is down more, much more Appalachia. And uh, I was drafted by the Newark Buffaloes which are no longer in existence, but played in Newark, Ohio, where Denison University is. And, um, yeah, that league's still going, still going strong. Um, and a lot of players get picked up from, uh, from there. A lot of pitchers get picked up from there. It's just amazing to me how these scouts, you know, and these talent evaluators can look at you like they, they can have you run and then throw, you know, 10 times and take 10 swings. And based on that, they can, they can know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, they make mistakes sometimes. I mean, you know, Mike Piazza was drafted in the 40th or 50th round or something. You know, there are these guys that sneak through the cracks. But uh, in general, like, they kind of know. You know, you can tell, like, uh, a good swing. You can tell somebody who's kind of got it, um, who's not intimidated, who's, who's you know, um, who's even if they're skinny little kids, they can tell who's going to fill out and who's not, uh, that kind of thing. But, like... I was just, you know, I was this boho pot smoking liberal arts kid who just was, you know, there was everyone else was crew cut and had been lifting weights and God knows what else for the last three years of their life. And I was not in that camp. (laughs) Did you uh, did you ever have any pressure or did you ever feel any sense of internal pressure to become a lawyer and follow in the footsteps of your of your folks? Um, Not a a little bit. I think I felt a pressure to find a real job immediately where I like put on a suit and went to work, uh, which I did. It was at a private investigative agency called Kroll Associates, which is uh, much more corporate than you would think a private investigative agency is. Um, it's a huge kind of a setup like a law firm. And it's not like following, 
cheating spouses around. It's following money around the world and like, um, you know, high level investigations, kidnap and ransom stuff, um, corporate espionage, stuff like that, trade secrets. Like so. But I was the kid even there who like because I didn't exactly look like a cop. I was getting sent around the city to go pull court records or go interview people or go follow somebody. And uh, it was a really interesting couple of years of my life. Um, and uh, I got the job because I was um, sitting next to a guy who was asking me all about baseball. Uh, this is at like a, a Kenyan thing. And um, asked what I wanted to do when I got to the city. And now that I was in the city and I said, oh, I want to be I want to be a journalist. I want to like find the underbelly of the city and write about it, you know, Pete Hamill kind of way. And he was like, okay, calm down. Um, why don't you come <laughs> see me, uh, next Monday morning? And so I did, and I had no idea what it was. And it turned out that he was like one of the, uh, executives at, at Kroll Associates. And he goes, look, you want to find out about the underbelly of the city and how things really work. There's no better thing you could do than be a young investigator for us. And, uh, you know, I thought it was it was fabulous, but I also didn't really want to work in any kind of law enforcement for my whole life. So I was there for a couple of years and then and it was really interesting. It was pre it was right when the Internet was hitting. It was 1995, 96. And I remember we had one Internet terminal like in the middle and all the invest like top investigators were like, you can't find anything on that stupid device. Like stay away from that. The private investigations are all about like, you know, pounding the pavement and you know, you're never going to find anything online. <laughs> and that's how stupid that is looking back on it. Right. Yeah. You know, I was thinking like on a, in a on like a related but distant note, um, I'm going to be like tying two things together here, but you were talking earlier about memoir and writing your memoir and how there was this moment in publishing. I think it was right around the turn of the century. Uh, I want to say heartbreaking work was published in 2000. I think it was right? like 99, maybe 98, 99. Yeah. Yeah. So like right around there. But I do remember there was a moment where that was like, you know, there was a sustained period of years where memoirs were an easier sell. And I guess that sort of coincides with the rise of the Internet. And a question that comes to mind for me is maybe the opening up of memoir to a wider range of authors has something to do with the movement of authors into the digital realm and the ease with or the comparative ease with which somebody might market a memoir versus marketing a piece of fiction like the, this idea that if it's your life you know what i'm yeah. saying like from a from a platformy interviewee perspective you know it's easier to maybe engage with an audience and with a prospective readership if it's like, oh, you know, this is the story of how I was raised by wolves and, you know, then the circus clowns came and this all really happened to me versus you, you know, trying to talk about some, uh, you know, imaginary world that you created. Am I making any sense here? <laughs> like yeah, it might be. No, I mean, I, you know, memoir also has coincided with, you know, reality television and just the whole kind of, uh, you know, the self moving to the fore where it was just really frowned upon for forever just to, you know, put yourself in a story. Um, and now all of a sudden it just seems ridiculous that there was ever a time when you wouldn't. Um, for me, like, yeah, it kind of 
became there were great memoirs before Eggers, obviously. Uh, but for me, it started really with that book, uh, having the permission to do it and to be inventive about your life, not in the factual basis, but in terms of like telling the story. Uh, and then when I published my book in 2006, the um, right before I published it, the whole James Fry thing went down with uh, a million little pieces where he went on and, you know, it turns out he'd made up a great deal of the book and he'd been on Oprah and the whole, I don't know if you remember that whole fiasco. Um, And then my, my book was like the next memoir out by like a dude. And so I got a lot of press for that book because people were fact checking it because everyone thought memoirs were all of a sudden full of shit. And luckily, maybe because I'm the child of two lawyers, like I had been very careful with the truth in that book. And obviously you make up dialogue and stuff like that. But um, the the facts of the book and where I was and what I had done all lined up. And um, uh, so I remember like USA Today, like fact checked that book. And that was a great press for me because they were talking about the book the whole time. But it was like um, it wasn't in a, it wasn't a real review. It was just like, is this is this book full of shit, too? Is this one? Is this one? And so anyway, after Fry, I think memoirs took a backseat for a little while again um, because that was such a big explosive incident. But then. I think it just it, they couldn't help becoming moving to the fore and becoming a huge part of the literary landscape. Uh, and so by 2010, um, everybody was writing them again and everybody wanted to hear about young lives and lives other than their own. And everybody wanted to write them. Um, uh, I'm not hearing that so much now that people want to write memoir. Uh, people seem to be wanting to write novels more again. And I'm wondering if it's like there's an exhaustion with with the self a bit amongst kind of more literary minded people where it it just, if every life is explored every, you know, like, I don't know, it just is um, in some ways. And I don't think anybody ever talks about this. There is a bit more of a movement back to the novel these days. Uh, Maybe it's just too much reality, too much reality TV, too much, you know, just reality just is not great these days. So I was going to say, I was going to say, I feel like in my consumptive habits, and I've talked about this recently, I've become uh, more of a fiction reader during the pandemic, just as like, I I think the desire to escape and to get into some other world, like, I think that's kind of natural. And I think too, maybe these things are cyclical in some way, like, you know, there are just these movements and artistic movements might exhaust themselves and there's just a natural sort of shift to something else. And then eventually that will become exhausted. And what, what also happened, I think is a lot of memoirs that got written or started getting written, you know, 10 years in the last 10 years are not like natural memoirs where the person lives the life and then decides to write about it. But it's much more of a cooked up thing where they're like, Oh, I have a book idea. I'll go out on, 250 dates this year and write about them after, you know, and it's almost like a book proposal that then they go and live the life after they have the book deal. And it's, it's a bit more, um, contrived. And I think more and more memoirs like that came out like the year of whatever. And, um, uh, and that kind of has sullied the waters a bit. It's, you know, it's not this kind of natural life that's lived and then considered and written about afterwards. Yeah, what I'm sort of like you you referenced Sedaris earlier, you know, because I've written autobiographically and I feel sort of emptied out, you know, that's kind of where I'm at now. And then I'm thinking to myself, well, if this is the mode that I seem to like, like I'm going to have to refill. Like I, who are these people who, I mean, I guess if you have some super crazy childhood or you've lived through, you know, 
some sort of trauma or sure. just, you know, crazy life experiences, maybe you can find that there's like a really, uh, you know, there's a really rich vein to mine, but like, I, I don't understand how people can keep generating, uh, yeah. you know, over and over again, the stuff of their lives. Like, I guess maybe you have to have an eye for the minutia and find ways to tease narrative out of it. But it just seems to me like you would have to have some sort of extraordinary life circumstances to, to sustain it. Yeah. But at the same time, every story kind of finds its, its genre in a way. Like there are some stories that should be written as memoir. There are some stories that should be written as novels, but like, you know, novels as memoir kind of, you know, stuff. Uh, and there's some stuff that should just be pure fiction. I, you know, each story requires its own tone and telling in a way. And it's hard, you know, and the most successful ones are the ones where the writers figure out exactly how to tell the story best. Um, but that's part of what writing is, is not just the words on the page, but how, you know, how, how a story is, is told, um, the choices the writer makes in terms of, you know, um, uh, you know, much broader choices before the writing actually happens. Like, you know, am I telling the story correctly? Uh, is this the right, uh, genre? Is this the right tone? Is this the right, you know, um, a tense even, you know, it's just, uh, that's as important almost as, as the minutia of the, of the writing itself. So you have Kings County out now. Uh, you've been doing what everybody I've been talking with lately has been doing is trying to find a way to go on book tour without going on book tour in a traditional sense. Uh, and then I guess you're starting to entertain, uh, thoughts for the next one. And I think we've gotten as far as money on that front. I, mean, I don't know. If, are you much further than that? On, uh, uh, I, I am. Yeah. It's going to be, um, I think I'm going to write historical fiction because again, it's something I've never done. Uh, that coupled with the fact that I've, I've written a few quite contemporary novels. Um, I'm not sure I want to write about New York uh, again, uh, right away. Uh, I think, and, you know, I've talked to some other writers. I just have no interest in writing about the present moment. Um, it just seems so fraught uh, politically, um, you know, uh, pandemically. Uh, it just is um, uh, real life has overtaken us so thoroughly that um, I don't want to recreate it in fiction right now. Um, so I have a, yeah, an idea for a, a historical novel. Um, where, uh, you know, it's, it's actually rooted in uh, a true story about a, uh, a large scale robbery that takes place somewhere in Europe, um, after the war, after world war two, and uh, a great deal of money goes missing. And I want to trace that money. And this would be the fictional part of the book, uh, trace that money down through a generation or two and just, kind of explore what money does to people and how it corrupts or doesn't corrupt and the way people, you know, uh, change their lives or have their lives changed because of it. I, you know, I don't again have the plot yet, but I have the, the germs of the idea and I'm starting to get the characters and for whatever reason, the plot will come, I hope later. Um, but it just, it's something I haven't done. It's something that interests me. I want to move out of like the kind of, you know, contemporary New York. I feel like I've, I've, I've done now and, um, um, see what happens. I feel like your background as a private investigator could come in handy. 
in <laughs> plotting this, like tracking, mo- chasing money, you know, following the money. Like there's got to be some sort of procedural stuff that you've been through professionally that could come in handy. Uh, a little bit that, and I'm just always curious about the world. And if there's one other thing a writer should be, it's, it's that, uh, I always want to learn stuff that I don't know. Um, I love the research aspects uh, of even a novel, uh, Kings County. I did so much research for, from like going on private tours of the Kennedy space center to, uh, spending a while in a mill town to, uh, you know, uh, the music world, which I had always, um, enjoyed as a fan but really didn't know how music got made um stuff like that where i just i'll immerse myself in a world for a while and so much of it won't even make it in the book but but then i understand the atmosphere of the world i'm writing about and um uh it just it helps a ton so i love that stuff and the historical fiction obviously lends itself to research more than uh contemporary stuff does so uh it, it should be interesting well, I wish you well on it. It's been great to talk with you, um, you know, after being like, or after having you on my radar, you know, for all these years. And uh, I congratulate you on the success of Kings County and wish you well on the, uh, I guess we'll call it the money book. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, Brad, thanks so much. I've been listening to this podcast forever too. And uh, it's such a joy to be on here and get to talk to you about stuff. Okay, that's David Goodwillie. His novel is called King's County. It is available now from Avid Reader Press. You can find him online at uh, davidgoodwillie.com. You can also follow him on Twitter. His handle there is at Goodwillie. Once again, the book is called King's County. It's a novel. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show, more than 650 episodes, is available free of charge. The whole thing is offered freely. It's a listener-supported program. If you have the means to support the show, you want to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to send in a photo of where you listen, that's a listener uh, participation thing that we're doing. Like take a photo of wherever you are when you're listening and then DM the photo to us on Twitter at OtherPPL or on Instagram at OtherPPL.podcast. You can also email me, letters at OtherPPL.com. Let us hear from you. Let us know where you listen. Uh, There's a hashtag. I think it's like hashtag where I listen. But uh, check it out. You can also get other people gear. Do you, you, I think you need another people t-shirt. It's time. You can get one of those by going to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Look for the uh, picture of the t-shirt on the left sidebar. You can't miss it. Click on that t-shirt. You can get a t-shirt. It's very soft. It's uh, They're really good t-shirts. I'm not shitting you. They're really good. You can get a sweatshirt. You can even get a tank top. You can get all three. I don't, you know, it's up to you. What else? What am I forgetting? Oh, yeah, the app. The Other People app. It's free. It's the official app of this program. The Other People with Brad Listy app. Get it wherever you get your apps. It is free. It's a great way to listen. Get the app. Coming up next time on the show, Matthew Salisis makes his triumphant return. Register to vote. Don't forget to vote. Vote early. Vote. Vote. 
Vote.